Hi, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling tonight, Trevor? I feel all right. I feel sore because I just went hiking, and now I'm recording a podcast, and nice. my legs are sore. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel like uh, breakfast for dinner because that's what I just had. Dude, Brenner? <laughs> you had Brenner? Yeah, it's the best. It is the best. It's funny because I was actually thinking about having some Brenner tonight we're on the same wavelength there's still time (laughs) uh so what which episode are we in right now we're on 37 37 yeah 37 okay awesome nice odd number uh so yeah this week i thought we have a kind of a topic to discuss so i'm going to start with a uh question for you Mm -hmm. why do you think that writers write What's wow. The motivation there? I think at the base like level, I think that this would re- be a very different answer different times throughout my life. You know, like when you're younger, you would probably be like to be cool or like to like say something cool or whatever, but I actually think that writers write because it's it's like a compulsion that they actually kind of it's a it's like a compulsion of expression that they don't really like 100% control. Um, I know that some writers like struggle with like forcing themselves to write. Some really great writers have like talked about forcing themselves through writing block and stuff. But I think at like as like a base emotion, it's that it's like a compulsion that like it seems valuable to you to like put your experience like down on paper, like to record it somehow. Because there, I mean, obviously, there's millions of people in the world who just find no value in that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, they're just like, oh, like, my thoughts, like, why would they need to be chronicled? Doesn't matter. Um, but writers have, like, a thing inside them that's that, that that's what they do. Why, what do you, why do you think writers okay. write? Well, uh, I think um, the only reason that someone would become an author is obviously to win the Nobel Prize in literature. It's, it's the big carrot <laughs> on a stick. And, exactly. Know, it's, a, it's a $1 million prize. And, international fame and that's all there is so it's, all uh, of literary history is due not to self-expression but to catching that carrot on the stick the nobel yeah, prize and anyone anyone who didn't win you know they came short um, right so anyways that's not true that's not how i feel at all but i did want to talk about <laughs> the nobel prize in literature this week because we're in the middle of october and a few days ago the swedish academy chose two recipients this year for the uh Right. And the history in 2019. Yeah. The history behind that, too, is that they chose two recipients because there was quite a controversy in 2018. Correct. Yeah. There was some stuff going on within the Academy last year. So they just yeah. postponed it. So we got yeah. two winners this year. We got um, uh, Polish author Olga Tokarczyk and mm-hmm. Austrian author Peter Huntke. Uh, can't say okay. I'm too familiar with these two this is what often happens with the nobel prize is that i feel like i'm so keyed into the literary world like having you know just trying to keep up on reading with the podcast and everything and then oftentimes the nobel will come out and i'll just be like i have no idea who this i mean i guess it's i think maybe they do see themselves as a way of like a mode of discovery like bringing people that maybe you haven't heard of into the light but i feel like over and over it's been like i don't know who that is yeah, it's a lot of it's. I mean, it's world world literature, you know. We have of course. Our own point of view and everything, and like, but I've definitely been enjoying like the uh, online discourse from people, you know, more informed than myself. Mm. And a lot of people seem to be upset because like the chair of the literature committee, you know, for the Swedish Academy, like sort mm-hmm. of promised to focus on like diversity. And then they ended up choosing like two European authors. And there's a uh, lot okay. of, yep. there's some controversy. Like, uh, I don't want to dive into it without, you know, knowing a lot about it, but a lot of people right. seem to be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's interesting. So one was Polish and one was Austrian. Austrian. Okay, yeah. So they they went back to their roots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. But still, yeah. still in Europe. Still. Let, Europe. let so, me yeah. let me ask you a question about the Nobel Prizes. What what has it brought into your literary world? Because there's a few authors that it's brought to my literary world. 
Uh, I mean, I remember reading about like the con- mostly. It's all about controversy. I, I read about the controversy mm-hmm. with like Steinbeck when he won in the forties, and you know, a lot of people had a problem with it. Hmm. Um, I what it brought to me is. I just knew, you know, at first being curious about Faulkner and then also like it's just that extra little like pinpoint on the resume, you know, where it's like you're curious about Faulkner or Hemingway or something like that. And then it's like, well, they did win the Nobel Prize Um, kind of I think it has the ability to maybe like push you over the edge a little bit. It also brought me to um, who was the the she, there's an author that you did where she did that short story collection dance of the happy shades what was her name uh alice Lou, monroe yeah monroe she won like in 2013 yeah so i like back in 2013 i was also considering like again like thinking about the Nobel prize and i was just like well why shouldn't i just like look up who most recently won it and it's uh, like i said it's always something like that where it's someone where i'm just like i have no idea who this is but well, usually when I check it out, they're worth it. I mean, Alice Monroe was worth it. Ishiguro won two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Ishiguro felt Ishiguro felt like a return, though, to because before that, they were like experiment Again, the controversy around the Nobel Prize, they were experimenting with like they had like Bob Dylan win it. And it was like, <laughs> what? Like, I remember I remember like thinking I was so smart and cool or whatever on like an ancient Twitter of mine from the past where I was saying... Um, like when Bob Dylan won for literature, I was like, next up, Stephen King's going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? Um, oh, yeah, but yeah, it, me off. yeah it, 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 it did piss me off. It pissed me off. I like Bob Dylan, too, but I was like, he's not like a Nobel Prize winner of literature. It's so fucking stupid, <laughs> which kind of so like it made me even more mad. Well, like it kind of know. like. What's interesting, like you said, about controversy around the Nobel Prize and stuff, it's like that's their pedigree at this point. Because it was like, was that not some sort of indicator of how like wacky and weird they are that it was like, oh, Bob Dylan, he's definitely, the, you know, like it's supposed to be like yeah. some prestigious literary award, not like <laughs> some like thing that you do for like publication, like, you know, marketing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. We should. We have to learn by now that we can't place hope in any real awards. You know, Grammys, yeah. Oscars, Emmys, etc. You know, you, they never go to who you think deserves them. And sometimes ridiculous stuff happens, like uh, Jethro Tull winning the 1989 Grammy for best heavy metal, metal recording yeah. over Metallica, <laughs> shit like that. Right. Yeah. It's like, what were you? What were you thinking? But we never really learn the lesson of awards because, like you said, it's the giant carrot on the stick of like that's what you kind of actually want you know like for your like i I don't think it's a i don't think it's a motivator of any truly great artist's career but it's also something that you would like accept like if you were just like yeah i won like a literary award it would be like oh sick (laughs) you know (laughs) it's the only way to like it's like one of the only ways to prove to people like oh yeah i'm legit other than getting your book published or like some other thing but the other, I think, I think awards also try attempt to try to attempt to take people out of time, you know, like right now, this person, you know, versus, you know, most of literary and artistic history is like they become huge after they're dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it goes. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, this award, I mean, well, this award, the Nobel Prize for Literature, it's it's supposed to be like. I mean, there's, I don't know what other qualifications there are, but like, it's supposed to be uh, for the person who has produced, quote, in the field of literature, the most outstanding work in an ideal direction, whatever the fuck that means, (laughs) ideal direction, who decides that? Um, And it's usually, you know, based on a whole body of work and not something specific. Mm hmm ideal <laughs> yeah usually yeah it is over like a body of work i i i remember learning that about it because everybody i like one thing that i think is kind of weird about hemingway's legacy is that like how everyone is like so obsessed with the old man in the sea and it's like really not that great of a book it's so pared down to being essential Heming like essential hemingway in his way that it's sort of like yeah it's like you know, the sun also rises and like farewell to arms and stuff. I thought was like a lot better, mm-hmm. 
So when they taught, when they referenced the old man in the sea and the Nobel Prize, that's when I learned that it was usually for a body of work. So I was like, what? Old man in the sea is like, yeah. you know, not that good. I don't I still don't think it's that good. It's too simple. It's too simple. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so the one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is because or this topic, you know, of the Nobel Prize was that. I was, you know, I think I sent you the link for an article I saw where it had like, mm -hmm. it was discussing who might win. And that was kind of right. cool to think about. And they even had like odds, like, I don't know how they were developed at all, but Vegas well, I can or give whoever. You, I can give you some context to that, that actually, because that article was referencing, um, this was like sort of a culture shock of living in the UK for a few years and God forgive me if I say anything inaccurate in this next uh, part of the podcast. But um, you may have noticed in that article that they referenced, and we'll post that on Twitter, the article, they referenced um, Ladbrokes. Do you know what that is? No. Uh, but that, yeah. yeah, the article, this is an article from newrepublic.com that we're talking right. about. So Ladbrokes is, this was something where I was like, what is that? Like in London, you'll just see these little shops that are called Ladbrokes. And basically betting in the uk and i think europe too like pretty much only in america is it like betting is like run by the mafia you know like <laughs> basically ladbrokes is like a chain like starbucks like as common as starbucks where you can just go in and place bets on like soccer games and football games and cricket games okay. and you can just kind of do anything but i think that they also run a business that it's like you can place a bet on like anything so the Nobel Prize, Prop like bets. people, yeah, yeah people Prop do bets. like, like do insane bets on like weird, like who's going to win the Nobel Prize and stuff like that. We're, we're starting to do that in the States. There's a lot more, a lot more legal betting. Um, I know that, that actually happened when I moved away. Yeah. Yeah. Is that supposed to be rad blokes? Is that what it is? Rad blokes? No, it's lad brokes. <laughs> lad brokes, rad blokes. Yeah. Okay. Maybe uh, they should, you could, should you should start them. a competitor called rad blokes. <laughs> probably get the millennial crowd <laughs> yeah so so in that article though there was um i think uh they were like some of them were like oh these are somewhat possible and then it was long shot odds and then it was not happening but it's funny to think about like right so uh i think i'm just gonna throw some names that we were familiar with like margaret atwood was in there at around six or seven to one odds uh, murakami came in at 11 to one odds which, you know, maybe we'll see that someday. Murakami always comes in. Every year, the Nobel Prize conversation is like, are they just going to give it to Murakami this year? Yeah, could be. Could maybe, be. I think next year. We'll say next year. Yeah, always next year. Um, the, on that article, it had, a, uh, it had a section that was called, These Americans Aren't Going to Win. <laughs> had, uh, Marilyn Robinson, uh, Don DeLillo, Joyce Carol mm -hmm. Oates, Joan Didion. I almost think that they, these kind of lists that speculate who's going to win the Nobel might even be a better reading list than who wins. You yeah. Know? <laughs> I mean, even that had some old names I had no idea, but, yeah, you know, might be something to look into. Uh, and then there was another section that was called, titled, uh, Can You Imagine the Think Pieces? Like, if these people won, with uh, mm -hmm. had Nausgaard on it, Sally Rooney, mm -hmm. and George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've covered Nosgard and Sally Rooney. We named an episode after Commissioner George R. R. Martin, but uh, <laughs> we haven't we haven't read one of his books yet. Uh, I actually looked into that. You know, who has won this prize as far as authors that we've covered? Uh, mm -hmm. Herman Hesse won it in forty six. Did he? Did he win Fall. it for like like once he was famous for Siddhartha? I think so. Yeah, forty forty six. That would have been. Mm -hmm. By then, uh, Faulkner in 49. I messed right. up earlier. I said Steinbeck in the 40s. It was 1962. Uh, Alice Munro, 2013. Kazuo Ishiguro, 2017. I think mm -hmm. that's it. And actually, I, I'll try to find it on YouTube and link to it because I was also at one time fascinated. Uh, Faulkner's Nobel acceptance speech, which there is a recording of, is like what? pretty cool. It's cool. It's pretty cool. There's like transcripts of it, but it's also, you know, he just kind of like in his own Faulkner way, like in his crazy accent and stuff, just like describes, you know, the feeling of winning an award. It's pretty Damn. epic. Yeah, I got to check that out. Back when the back when the Nobel Prize meant something when it really <laughs> meant something. 
of course. He put on his nicest uh, Colonel Sanders suit. Nah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he did. He's like in some white suit or something. There's pictures of him accepting it too. Um, I had one more note about about this year's awards. I saw another article where the uh, Irish author John Banville got like a mm-hmm. call from a Swedish number before the names were announced, and they told him that he had won, and hmm. then he found out later that it was a hoax, and he had like. There was wow. no way. <laughs> yeah. So they just, you know, totally uh, trolled him or whatever. I don't I know. I wonder if their, he had like a, was. I wonder if he had like a nice dinner party with like family and friends. <laughs> That's so horrible. No, I think I think it said that he only thought that he had won for about 45 minutes until mm-hmm. like uh but yeah, that that's uh that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's so horrible. That's like I don't think I think the emotion that I could get to that's closest to that would be one time I was selling a camera on eBay and someone was fraudulently promising me like more money if I would just ship it to them immediately. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And then I was like, no, wait a second. Like this is that's like this is like a scam. That's like what they do. But actually at my, like, uh, my school, um, at, like after our thesis films played, they do like an award ceremony and, uh, at, at the one for mine, the one for one of the animation categories, um, they were announcing the best animated film and the guy read the thing wrong. And this girl went up to the stage and he was like, Oh wait, never mind. You were one of the oh, nominees. You didn't win. Like and the, it was like, like so... what? <laughs> Yeah, like the Oscars, like that time. Moonlight, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like so awkward and everyone was like, oh my God. (laughs) I think, yeah, didn't Steve Harvey do that in Miss Universe or something too? Yeah, it's happened a few times. (laughs) Oh my God, so terrible. Nice. Uh, So who who do you, who would you like to win eventually? Murakami's up there. Yeah, Murakami's up there, but only because it's annoying that he gets like, it, there's always speculation. I think he's been like shortlisted or something like a bunch of times or it would just be cool. But at the end of the day, like I said, I think that I think that a, mo- a writer's motivation is not that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Murakami as, you know, a modern author. Do you think it would bring um, Pynchon out of hiding if he won? That would be interesting. That would be interesting if they awarded it to Pynchon and it was like, is he going to appear like at the award ceremony? That's like, actually, we should like petition the Nobel Prize people. <laughs> Everyone out there who really wants to see Pynchon uh, should should petition the Nobel yeah, Prize. We'll he should that. win it. I mean, Jesus, he should like I would be 100 percent OK with Pynchon winning it for his body of work. Yeah, so I brilliant. Mean, someday, we'll see. Has anyone ever been awarded it posthumously? Like they just choose like a dead person? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look. I didn't look into Mm. it that far. Possibly. That would be interesting. That they don't have to give any any money away. (laughs) Maybe once they're... No, they would still have to give the money to like a charity (laughs) or an estate or something like that. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Where does the money come from? That's a good question. Where does the money Uh, come from? Well, no, the guy... uh, Alfred Nobel, Alfred Nobel. He had a huge trust fortune, fund, right? Yeah, I guess it kind of it's probably one of those things that like self precipitates. Yeah. Yeah, it just makes like interest off of itself and then they give a million dollars to strange authors. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Nobel Prize. I mean, I'd be interested to know like if there's anywhere out anywhere among our listenership if there if people have really used it as a tool to like as a reading list or or how people are like kind of react to it. It's hard to be the poster child for one type of award. So, yeah, yeah. Like I like watching all the movies that are nominated for best picture. Like right. every, every, yeah, like that. But so. that has its own like that has its own catch twenty two. Like there's a whole community of people you know who are like, oh, the Oscars are stupid. And, yeah, yeah. You know, because it's <laughs> like you know some of the best films are never even considered, and mm-hmm. you know whatever. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Let us know what you think about the Nobel Prize or the winners are good or not. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we'll, they'll pop up on future episodes. <laughs> uh, 
so anyways this i'm gonna i'm going first this week and right. so when i was thinking about this week i got to thinking about my short list of books that i've kind of wanted to cover since we started this whole thing mm-hmm. and so i'm gonna knock another one off that list this week nice which is you know can be a bad idea because having that back catalog is nice and is helpful when things get too busy of course but, yeah um, I've dipped into my back catalog more times than I'd like to admit. <laughs> uh, and it, yeah, me too. And um, so the author I want to cover this week, well, we um, we talked about him during the intro last week and very briefly this week because he was a long shot for the Nobel. But nice. I think I'm going to do something different and you know talk more peripherally about the book since it's pretty popular and a straightforward review you know, might not do it justice or it's been something mm-hmm. that's done many times before. And, but that's what the show is all about, kind of doing something different. And uh, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was what got me into reading more and more in college and, you know, challenging myself with quote unquote difficult books. And, you know, even, even uh, for this podcast is the genre or classification of postmodern literature. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, you know, has its own kind of set definition, but I think I would like to attempt my own definition here and invite you to kind of do the same. So when I was thinking about it, like, uh, I got a couple different definitions here. Mm, I guess more traits than definitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is, you know, postmodernism to me is almost like a thought experiment in stretching whatever topic you can place in front of you to its farthest points like Mm -hmm. the opposite end of what it is like the postmodern author can take something stupid like you know breakfast cereal mascots and you make it sinister or you know something else and or take like a take like a root canal or something like that like sort of setting and make it a blissful sort of thing Mm -hmm. just for examples you know but the danger here is that it can very easily become like insufferable devil's advocate type stuff like right. the worst person in your sociology 101 class and that's why there's a very there's you know bad postmodernist authors but there's some really good ones too uh so that's one thing one way i would you know describe postmodern literature and what what is it to you yeah i mean it's kind of like the the the, the word itself postmodern is that I feel like I should have a better grasp on what modern is <laughs> um, because it's obviously like a reaction to something else. Something that I think I do remember from just reading and researching and stuff is uh, I think Faulkner is considered a modern author so that postmodern would be like a reaction to someone like within that whole era. I mean, Faulkner is like his own genre, but I do know that he's considered modern and then postmodern would be like Pynchon and and like uh william gas i think and uh who's the guy there's a few like authors kind of in that class the like the most famous ones that are postmodern. but to me i think he's yeah i think you said it pretty accurately like stretching like a subject matter like basically not taking the i think it's a reaction also to realism sort of like not really accepting the bounds of reality because like the 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 reality is the most real thing about a book is that all it is, is like someone writing like whatever they make up. So to mm-hmm. kind of be within the bounds of reality is not necessary. So I think that people were discovering that in postmodernism. And then also going back to that thing that James, the critic James Wood said about white teeth, about like hysterical realism of just being <laughs> like, you can just do anything. Like it's so stupid and whatever, but it's like, if you just don't find that stupid, if you find it really interesting and fun and a way to like, I find a lot of postmodern books is their length is justified by how fun it is to feel this like silliness from someone who is obviously like highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kudos. That's, that's what I would say. You know, that's I what like postmodernism that, yeah. is. Yeah. I was actually hoping, and I was hoping that you would remember that, uh, James Woods thing. I, I wasn't, I didn't remember who the name was. I knew it was yeah. something. I knew it was to it's, do with Sadie Smith. Yeah. Um, hysterical realism. Yeah. Because that was my next point. Like I find it, you know, postmodernism to be like a thought experiment where, it's almost like an improv 
you know, which I'm not advocating for, but <laughs> it's like, it's like Mad Libs without a script, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, linked together, like, okay, you got a postmodern author and you challenge them to link together the pieces into why this mm-hmm. uh, science teacher from Spokane is addicted to huffing gas, but he's also naturally understands 17 different languages and he has twin daughters who do super (laughs) mario speed runs or something yeah exactly exactly (laughs) but i also think it's like a very it's also a very particular feeling within the mode of reading that like you know i would put even though it's it's not known for its length like don delilo white noise i would put that into like it has like a like a taste of like postmodernism because it's like it's a very particular feel of like diving into a world that is alternate to reality, but not necessarily, you know, fantasy or sci-fi or something like that. It's like, you know, a different lens on the world. That's very like fun to interact with most of the time. Nice. Uh, can you take a guess at what book I'm covering this week? Oh. I don't know what book. Exa- <laughs> oh, are you doing white noise? Yeah. <laughs> oh shit. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad the conversation <laughs> led there because I thought originally you might be doing like a pension or something. But yeah, white noise. No, I had to I had to bring it back to white noise because we talked about it last week a little bit when I was talking about uh, Libra. Yeah, and yep. then, uh, you know he was on the on that article for uh, the Nobel Prize and stuff. But mm-hmm. I want to get one thing out of the way first. I think it's our last remaining pronunciation that we differ on. Yeah, d- con- what are you, Delilo? Conquered. We it's Delilo for sure. We've okay. conquered the Pynchon Pinecone debate <laughs> and the Proust Proust. Yep. And then, but for, uh, yeah, Don DeLillo, because the two L's at the end. And I, I read, I watched a couple of interviews and stuff. It's like. Wait, um, so say it one more time. I already forgotten. Say it. DeLil. DeLillo. DeLillo. Okay. Fine. Like Phil and Lil DeVille. Not okay. Lyle. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but, anyways. Um, I wanted to talk about night wo- uh, night noise, white noise, since we've kind of you know we mentioned it a few times. Uh, it's one of my favorite po- you know examples of postmodern literature, and it's it's an, an accessible one too because it's you know three hundred pages or so. It's not huge, um, mm-hmm. and I just sort of think that Delillo he was on a roll with this one, in the sense of being able to just elaborate on every conceptual focus of the plot and have like a a profound unique take on it in that sort Mm -hmm. of postmodern like waxing poetic about stuff and i don't know i I like that shit uh but i also wanted to talk about it because i found my old notebook and i only read five or so books this way but back when i was like 21 22 i used to write down passages I used to like have a section for like, okay, I'm reading white noise. And then when I come up with, when I come across some paragraph that I like or something, I would just write mm-hmm. it word for word in my notebook. Right. Yeah. It's a good practice for trying to like get into your own writing style is to like emulate. Cause you don't, there's really not any opera. I, I've done this a few times digitally and physically where it's sort of like, it's really hard to realize the full weight of a sentence or a paragraph without just copying it word for word and being like, Oh, that word came after that word. Like, that's like how it, you know, it's different than just reading it. Yeah. You're not just scanning it, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, it, I think it does, you know, put it in your own handwriting kind of makes it stick a little more in your mind and it, you know, it makes the book more impactful. And I think that was, I did that when I read this book for the first time. So I think it was a, a nice way to kind of absorb it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, that's when I was back when I was kind of thinking that I could write and I was looking for inspiration and stuff. Um, but I, I want to read from my own notes in a little bit, but I just want to cover the plot for a second. Mm-hmm. So I would say in a nutshell, white noise, it's a book about like a neurotic college professor named Jack Gladney. He's a Hitler scholar randomly and he, but he never got around to learning German. So, you know, he's kind of hiding from that fact. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole bunch of kids, a whole, uh, you know, broad range of vivid personalities. They're all kind of fit in that postmodernist where they're all super unique and maybe one of them is a genius and maybe one's like mm-hmm. 
crazy and and you know him and his fourth wife Babette they're just obsessed with death and always talking and wondering who's going to die first and that sort of thing consumes them on a daily basis and uh you know that's the first part of the book is really just that and then there's a chemical spill in the town I think a train crashes or something that's the when the airborne toxic event happens and that sort of reinforces their this concern and their focus on death and it sets off this whole panic which really just compounds the issue with the uh, death obsession and so you know this kind of probably sounds exactly like what we were talking about before like where it's mad libs about the structure it's right as as you just as you describe it it's like that that whole concept of criticizing um hysterical realism like comes back to me of like oh why would this college this hitler college professor be obsessed with death and his wife and blah blah blah. but it's like it's it's like too easy to criticize just the summary of the book not the actual experience of like when you're reading it you're not like i don't accept that it's so stupid it's just like (laughs) he's just like a good writer yeah yeah um i think in this case like it is kind of ridiculous a little bit and you know the dialogue is kind of it's not true to life i mean it's they're like kind of act like cartoon characters and mm-hmm. it is hyper real but it works really well and i yeah. think well, i would say also too that i have i've thought of some postmodern books in terms of beyond reality and in inter- like i do like you know i like to kind of like moveify novels in my head you know think of it like as a movie yeah. and sometimes when i'm reading like a pension or a, or a delillo De, De is that what i say yes, yes when i read that when i read that i think of animation like why not you know it would just be insane yeah oh there, yeah there's some parts in gravity's rainbow that are just like, oh 100 percent animation marvel <laughs> cartoon. um and yeah, I mean, I think white noise might be one of the best examples of postmodernism, if you know, if you ask me. And it's, I, I'm aware that I have so much more to read in the genre and, and outside of the genre. So mm-hmm. don't fault me for that. I'll, I'll get to it all. But for now, you know, this one has been setting the bar for me for a while. Um, first and foremost, I'd say it's a very, very funny book. It's um, hilarious. It's crazy dialogue and, you know, like like I said, like kind of like cartoon character sort of things. And there's a lot of stuff with his family that is just all, all over the place. And you kind of, you don't care that it's, uh, that it's kind of off the wall, but I think, I think the, the real value in the book, like I tried to kind of say before about postmodernism is just how he can describe things in everyday life and concepts and places that we don't really pay attention to or really just ignore their kind of significance like Mm -hmm. the grocery store or you know the concept of the college move-in weekend or uh, television and so i think i'm just gonna throw some random stuff from my notebook your way now and just try to put myself back in that mode of why i liked it or what it is about it and um i'm guessing most of them are going to be kind of like i said waxing poetic about just interesting stuff and having kind of a unique perspective on it with some you know intelligent language so it's going to be really scattered and weird but let's let's see what it's like cool there's the part in the book that's the most photographed barn in america do you remember that it's like a tourist attraction no <laughs> that's I, the other really thing about like postmodernism that. is like when you dive back in it's very different every time you know yeah so so i think the main character is with his friend side character named murray who basically only talks about stuff in that sort of way like he just um kind of talks to no one <laughs> or like he he just speaks in 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 this sort of way you'll see so they're at the most photographed barn in America, which only, you know, is only exists because of the name. Like it wouldn't be the most photographed barn if they didn't call it that and people kept taking photographs of it. Mm-hmm. So Murray says, we're not here to capture an image. We're here to maintain one. Every photo reinforces the aura. Can you feel it, Jack? An accumulation of nameless energies. 
Being here is a kind of spiritual surrender. We've agreed to be part of a collective perception, a religious experience like all tourism. Mm. Something random from page 20. Uh, the sense of well-being, the security and contentment these products brought to some snug home in our souls. It seemed we had achieved a fullness of being that is not known to people who need less, expect less, who plan their lives around lonely walks in the evening. I wrote down that's Jack, Jack's thoughts on the grocery store. Nice. <laughs> uh, from page 31. Jack, the most prominent figure in Hitler studies, did not know German. I was living, in short, on the edge of a landscape of vast shame. What we are reluctant to touch often seems the very fabric of our salvation. Hmm. Uh, oh, I remember th this. Th I remember this part right here being very impactful because I was like dealing with some uh, health issues at the time. Doctors' offices depress me even more than hospitals do because of their air of negative expectancy and because of the occasional patient who leaves with good news, shaking the doctor's antiseptic hand and laughing loudly, laughing at everything the doctor says, booming with laughter, with crude power, making a point of ignoring the other patients as he walks past the waiting room, still laughing provocatively. He is already clear of them, no longer associated with their weekly gloom, their anxious inferior dying. I would rather visit an emergency ward, some urban well of trembling, where people come in gunshot, slashed, sleepy-eyed with opium compounds. These things have nothing to do with my own eventual death. Nonviolent, small town, thoughtful. Hmm. Let me see if there's one more thing here. Pretty optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not going to die violently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's here's sort of here's sort of an example of the. Uh, postmodern staple of the precocious child who's you know a super right. genius or whatever yeah the, the impossible character <laughs> here's his kid talking to him his kid named heinrich name one thing you could make could you make a simple wooden match to make a flame we think we're so great and modern how do we make carbon paper what is glass what is a radio go ahead explain you're sitting in the middle of this circle of people they use pebble tools they eat grubs Explain a radio to them. What good is knowledge if it just floats in the air? It goes from computer to computer. It changes and grows every second, but nobody actually knows anything. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I, I would say that I feel that way sometimes about money as well. Like m money as a concept is like it's nothing. Like it's, it's like you get like satisfaction out of like higher numbers on your computer screen. <laughs> oh especially now yeah there's no yeah it's like literally nothing flow. it's just like a flow of nothingness <laughs> yeah really interesting i remember heinrich heinrich is awesome yeah he had that um he had a really strange friend too yeah the so whole book kind of has like a kind of like fucked up brainy bunch kind of vibe yeah 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 but overall you know very funny very interesting um if you haven't read any, I think it's one of the first postmodern novels that you kind of is recommended to you if you're uh, looking to explore the genre. Definitely, um, I'd say that's a it's a good one to start with. And I don't know, I got a one star review here if you're interested. Yeah, and I would say too that I've <laughs> made that mistake. I've made the mistake like too much of postmodernism is introduced by its most difficult and like taxing authors so like everybody is just like oh like i'm supposed to read this gravity's rainbow bullshit like whatever and it's like well maybe you should read white noise like that should be my my uh my answer from now on you know because i think a lot of people are like oh whatever you know it's just like some thousand page book that like makes no sense but white noise yeah. is kind of like a good intro yeah i think i think it's uh definitely good for that um so there are a lot of people who hate this book, of course. And of course. I found a lot of, a lot of bad reviews. Uh, here's, here's one from Jackson. One quarter of the way in, and I just didn't like it. Endless lists as let's think of every possible example one can think of and put them in. Comma, 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 like, comma, comma, more commas. Snarky, silly, very let's be sophisticated, clever, and sardonic at the same time. Long passages with no meaning, yet lots of words and a sort of pseudo-Lewis Carroll vibe. And he's my favorite author, by the way. Just got nothing from it all. At all. 
and I was there. I was there when this was written, the '80s as a young adult. Not for me. Hmm. Nice. I should mention that this is from 1985, and it won the National Book Award. It's pretty impressive that it's from '85 too. It's yeah, it's, it's very relevant. Yeah. Some of the observations and stuff. The world, nice. world hasn't gotten better somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, check out Dude, uh, definitely White not. Noise. White Noise, yes. Amazing book. Okay, well, uh, in traditional fashion, I go next with my book. If you guys have never listened to this podcast before, the structure is Mark talks about one book, I talk about one book, and he has no idea what book I'm talking about. Um, so today I'm actually talking about a book that I... I think when we started this podcast, we like sort of originally agreed that we wanted to bring mostly positivity. And I promise I am going to bring mostly positivity to my review <laughs> of this book. But I'm breaking the rule a little bit of like, I think we had originally said something like, don't really bring a book that you're just going to hate on or don't really bring a book that was like that you wouldn't necessarily recommend or approve of. So I'm, I'm not breaking that rule because there definitely is value in the book that I read today, but I'm bending it. I'm bending <laughs> a little bit. So the book that I'm bringing to the podcast today is Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen. Have you ever read anything by Jane Austen or were you forced to read anything by Jane Austen? You know, I don't think they ever forced us to. So no. I... I think i um, might have read something on kindle at some point yeah we had a particular me and mark were in the same english class in high school and we had a particularly non-strict prof i don't know if you could call him a professor at the high school level a teacher <laughs> who instead of doing instead of like oh you're gonna read pride and prejudice and be strict about it he was like we're gonna watch the movie over four classes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um which was probably detrimental to our education in ways that we Definitely. can't understand but uh <laughs> <laughs> which we haven't analyzed since but the reason why i thought that maybe i would bring Jane Austen to the podcast in the sense that I wouldn't necessarily recommend this book 100% is because I think that a lot of people's introduction to Jane Austen is that they're being forced to read her through a curriculum. Would you yeah. would you say that that would be a lot of the introduction to Jane Austen? Definitely. Um, you know, but, actually, I don't mind that. I wish we were forced to read more stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Um we should have been reading Pride and Prejudice, not uh, watching it. But um, we can go into the merits of our hometown school system later. But uh, so Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, like like I said, the reason I wanted to bring it into the podcast is because in a way I felt like I was my own teacher being like, just keep reading this, like just keep reading it because I found some parts of the book sort of like vapid and vain. Uh, I'll tell you the plot of the book right now, just like completely offhand. But basically, Jane introduced us to this character, Catherine Moreland. And she is, um, you know, these books, you know, Jane Austen, uh, she was publishing, she was probably writing things. She died in the early 19th century. So she was sort of like grew up like from 1700s into 1800s. And, um, you know, so obviously we're dealing with a different sort of language here. So some of it is sort of like just read through, you know, like interpret this language at the level that you need to interpret it at because you're not you can't come to this expecting that you're going to read like, you know, J.K. Rowling just like rolling off the page and entertaining you every second. Yeah. But um, the the plot of the novel is that Catherine Moreland is a young woman who is at the time of the novel, I think she's 16, 17, 18. And basically um, something to really understand about Jane Austen is that I think that it's important to understand that she's she's from a modern perspective, from a modern reader, you're used to irony being more on the nose you're used to it in sort of like a Seinfeld like way where it's like, that was an ironic statement. Whereas, <laughs> whereas Jane actually is being ironic, but when you're reading something from language that long ago, you think like she's not being ironic. She's just being like boring. Um, you know, cause like mainly this, 
book concerns Catherine goes from her original like hometown like homestead where she's not the richest person but not the poorest person in the world and she takes a trip with family friends to the city of Bath in England which I've been to and Bath is absolutely gorgeous such an amazing city uh like a little town in the middle of the country and um she goes to bath she ends up having more of a social life than she could have ever dreamed of when she was back home and she you know like makes a best friend and her and her best friend are you know they have crushes that they fall in love with or whatever and all the while you're sort of being like why the hell is this called northanger abbey we don't get to that until halfway through the book (laughs) um which i was waiting to discover um But and then eventually Jane ends up being invited to one of her new acquaintances homes, Northanger Abbey, which is like a giant like sort of estate. So think of like Downton Abbey, like she gets she gets she gets kind of invited into the world of the glitterati where it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got this invitation to go hang out at my friend's house who also happens to be the sister of my huge crush henry tilney and uh they go there and pretty much everything that you would ever this book is very predictable and not like you're not looking for like plot twists and like stuff like that it's like she gets together with henry in the end like you knew it you know and uh you know she you know there was there's there's like some minor betrayals and like oh like all this other stuff but the main thing that i think is important to understand about this about jane's writing is totally that she's being more ironic than you think from a modern perspective. So that like when when Catherine is being like really vapid with her friends and like, oh, your dress and like, oh, this. And I had to wait for my friend because it was raining outside and blah, blah, blah. I think that she is almost like the really classy, you know, 19th century early 19th century version of the movie clueless or legally blonde you know what i mean where it's like where it's like it knows they like the people who made legally blonde didn't make a movie about a dumb blonde girl they like knew that they were making something other than that you know it's like this ironic sort of thing um and i think that it's really hard to recognize that when you're looking back into the past and being like serious literature jane austen um But to talk about the author herself a little bit, I find it was kind of funny because when I first started initially reading about her life, people often complain about a lack of details about her personal life, like who was she, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then as I'm reading the Wikipedia, Wikipedia, it's like 20 pages of like, I was like, there's so much, there's so much detail here about like where she lived. And there were guys who she was only proposed marriage once and she accepted, but then redacted the next day, which is sort of like right on the nose for who, for for Jane Austen, like, like how she, how she writes and stuff like that. But the thing that's really fun about her betrayal. Yeah. The thing that's really funny about Jane and reading her, especially now, here in 2019 but also beyond is that that same ironic voice that same like sort of intelligent irony and quipping and stuff like that she comes up with just a lot of endless quotes about how women are treated versus men and how that's bullshit um and she was that type of person where apparently like when she was growing up with her family and stuff like that she would like there were play there were like the reason why sense and sensibility is called sense and sensibility is because there was a form of novel in the late 1700s called the sensibility novel or sentimental novel that was all about like love and roses and the the man on his horse coming to pick up the princess and she was like this is horseshit you know (laughs) so she kind of was like wrote in that way and i'll i'll This is from page 39 of my edition of Northanger Abbey. This is like a funny paragraph here. So Catherine is listening to um, some foppish type of young man who's in Bath. After listening and agreeing as long as she could, with all the civility and deference of the youthful female mind, fearful of hazarding an opinion of its own in opposition to that of a self-assured man, especially where the beauty of her own sex is concerned... You know, so she basically is always writing with this kind of thing of like, yes, Catherine was like, didn't speak her mind at all because that would be against the rules. Yeah, that's Um, awesome, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, That uh, that sort of um, voice that you just, you know, in that small sample. No, yeah, that's how you should read it. And and, and in a way, I think 
I came to realize that while reading this book is like, I was like 50 pages in being like, this book sucks. You know, like I was just sort of like, I don't care about her dress or whatever and blah, blah, blah. But let me assume the same voice of on page 33, 43. So she's talking to this guy, uh, James Thorpe, who is a, who is the brother or no, John Thorpe, who is the brother of her friend Isabella. And he's sort of like an insufferable moron. You know, he's like, <laughs> he's the guy, he's the guy who in, uh, he has like a, con like, he's the guy who has a convertible in modern times. There was like an old type of, <laughs> there was an old type of carriage that had like an open top and oh, all nice. he and all he does is ride around town and talk shit about other people's horses and like, my team is the best team and whatever. And she's like, oh, you're a fucking <laughs> idiot. Um, so she's talking to him and this is a paragraph. To be disgraced in the eye of the world, to wear the appearance of infamy while her heart is all purity, her actions are all innocence and the misconduct of another, the true source of her debasement, is one of those circumstances which peculiarly belong to the heroine's life and her fortitude under is it what it particularly dignifies her character. Catherine had fortitude too. She suffered, but no murmur passed her lips. So basically what Jane is saying there is like, Catherine has her own problems, but she has to put on this like front of purity because of quote unquote society, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so she's riding around with this guy, J John Thorpe, and just being like, oh, he's such a moron. Like all he does is talk about his horses and stuff like that. But she has to feign interest, you know, like, oh, like a, a proper young lady would be like, oh, yes, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, here's another really quick sentence that I underlined on page 94. A woman especially, if she has the misfortune of knowing anything, could she could should conceal it as well as she can. <laughs> so, you know, she she had, you know, this biting sort of sarcasm that I think really needs to be explained before you dive into the books because when if you just drive dive straight in and you're like, "Oh, Jane Austen's this important literary figure, you're going to be disappointed." Because she's not, she's not trying to write some novel that has great emotional depth or twists and turns and stuff like that. She's just being funny. Um, but one longer quote that I found really hilarious um, within the context of the novel was actually right in the beginning, page 30. And uh, I think Jane gets a little bit distracted from the own plot of her book here. So she comes forth with her own voice. And uh, this is... One of the themes of the book is that Catherine overreads. She's somebody who reads so much that her imagination is like too much for this uh, male dominated society to handle. So she goes through a lot of kind of false impressions of people and events and situations as she climbs the social ladder because she's read too many books, like too many like love stories and novels and stuff like that. So uh, this is at a part where it's where basically it's describing how Catherine reads novels. And please excuse me if this goes on for a little while, but I thought it was just so funny because I thought that Jane Austen got very distracted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, in her own writing. So, yes, novels, for I will not adopt that ungenerous and impoli impolitic custom to com so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding, joining with their greatest enemies and bestowing the harshest epithets on such works and scarcely ever permitting them to be read by their own heroine, who, if she accidentally take up a novel, is sure to turn over its insipid pages with disgust. Alas, if the heroine of one novel be not patronized by the heroine of another, from whom can she expect protection and regard? I cannot approve it. Let us leave it to the reviewers of, to abuse such effusions of fancy at their leisure and over every new novel to talk in threadbare strains of the trash with which the press now groans. Let us not desert one another. We are an injured body, although our productions have afforded more extensive and unaffected pleasure than those of any other literary corporation in the world. No species of composition has been so much decried. From pride, ignorance, or fashion, our foes are almost as many as our readers. And while the abilities of the 900th abridger of the history of England, or the man who 
collects and publishes in a volume some dozen lines of Milton, Pope, and Pryor, with a, with a paper from the Spectator and a chapter from Stern, are eulogized by a thousand pens, there seems almost a general wish of decrying the capacity and undervaluing the labor of the novelists, and of slighting the performances which have only genius, wit, and taste to recommend them. I am no novel reader. I seldom look into novels. Do not imagine that I often read novels. Is it is it rarely very well for the novel? Such is the common cant. And what are you reading, Miss Anonymous? Or, oh, it's only a novel, replies the young lady while she lays down her book with a affected indifference or momentary shame. It's only Cecile or Camilla or Belinda, or in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Now had the same young lady been engaged with the volume of The Spectator instead of such a work, how proudly would she have been pro would produce the book and told its name, though the chances must be against her being occupied by any part of that voluminous publication of which either the matter or manner would not disgust a young person of taste, the substance of its paper so often consisting in the statement of improbable circumstances, unnatural characters, and topics of conversation which no longer concern anyone living, and their language too, frequently to course as to give no f very favorable idea of that age that could endure it. <laughs> Was that one sentence? <laughs> no, that was that was a few paragraphs and a few sentences. But basically, she's being like, why do people shit on novels? They're like literally the best form of writing. And everyone always has something to say or something to complain about how someone wrote a book or whatever. You know, obviously, the notion of that has not gone away, gone away since the very inception of the novel. Not at um, all. That's great. So when I was reading that, I was like, damn, you got distracted. Like, you're not even talking about the characters anymore. I can just imagine her at her little desk writing and just raging about how people hate on novels. You're like, I'm reading a novel. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you know, she's basically because right before that, she's talking about how one of those foppish young gentlemen are kind of fawning, you know, they're they're on display of like, oh, I'm reading the very important history of England or whatever. And she's like, whatever, dude, like <laughs> novels are obviously 10 times better than history books, um, which in which I I heartily agree. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to move on so to my one. Yeah, she went off. She went crazy, which, you know, that's the power of Jane Austen is that she has this, you know, she has a very biting and sarcastic tone that's just sort of like, I'm the good writer. Why don't you shut up? You know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. So overall, I would say, you know, like I said, I would recommend this book, but only in a very specific context, because to most people, it's just it's not really that satisfying. And it's just sort of like. You know, you have to have a certain appreciation for it. And also, I would say one of the things that wouldn't recommend this book to especially our flow of the podcast is this is a short book. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, I was like, oh, score. It's like a little like book that's like 220, like barely 200 pages because of the, you know, the prologue and epilogue and the essays or whatever in the beginning. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so short. And it took me a month to read it. <laughs> took me and it took me like dense, three right? weeks or you know not not dense no it's not dense it's that i didn't care you know it oh, was okay, like gotcha. it was like her sarcasm and stuff and now that i'm relating it back to you it was funny and cool but at the same time i was like okay like at this part in the novel like Catherine got to the abbey and she's there with henry her crush and i was like i don't give a fuck you know i really don't <laughs> so that's not very that's not a very positive <laughs> review for jane austen <laughs> so that's my that's my review uh and i'll give the, the one star review of wow it has the hashtags on goodreads that Le, les petites américaines hashtagged i hate jane austen uh and their one star review from 2012 is a few smirk worthy moments made me hate this somewhat less than sense and sensitivity, but all in all a snore fest of the first order. I kept having to reread because I was spaced out for pages at a time. Boring is all hell and can be best summed up with one word sucked. So, so 
That's Jane Austen for you, Northanger Abbey. I can actually say, because of our horrible upbringing in English class, that this is the first Jane Austen that I've read. And I guess now when researching her for the podcast and her ironic tone of voice, maybe I would give her a second chance with... This was actually published posthumously, Northanger Abbey. was She had sold it to a publisher, and then they didn't publish it with revisions until after her death. So maybe I should read, you know... A lot of people really love Pride and Prejudice and stuff like that. I mean, it's launched a thousand... It's its own industry, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Pride and Prejudice and whatever else. So people really love that book. So I should give it a shot. Um, But yeah, this uh, that's my shitty book report. This has been Shitty Book Reports. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, You can find us every Sunday on SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram and Twitter, even though we're way more active on Twitter. And you can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Send us your comments, suggestions, corrections and whatever you're feeling.